Hello and welcome to the Squeaky Bum Time podcast presented exclusively on the Chop Sports channel of the Premier Streaming Network. We're recording this on Monday, January 23rd. I am your host, Laurent Cortines. In this episode, we will discuss the renewal of Man United versus Arsenal's rivalry where Arsenal restaked their claim on the title for the eighth time. Manchester City's Erling Holland back in the goals with a muscular performance. And we will get to the best 11 of the half. You didn't think I'd forget it. But first, I want to get back to running through the scores because that is what everyone is here for. We'll start in chronological order. Here we go. Saturday morning, Liverpool nil, Chelsea nil. I didn't get up for this. And I'm glad I didn't, but I did watch the highlights, so you don't have to. West Ham 2, Everton nil. Oh, no. Frank Lampard has been sacked, sacked, sacked. And in the best game of the weekend, Leicester 2, Brighton 2, Matomo with the goal of the week. Well, maybe Saka. Southampton 1, Aston Villa. Sorry. Southampton nil, Aston Villa 1. Villa playing well. Unai Emery, you are a legend. Bournemouth 1, Nottingham Forest 1. Chris, your boys. They pull it out with Sam Sturridge, old boys, McKenna on the pitch, and then a drab nil-nil, Palace versus Newcastle United at home. On Sunday, the big boys played. United, that's Leeds United, nil. Brentford, nil. Nothing to write home about there. Jesse Marsh getting into trouble with English people because English people don't like Americans. Manchester City, three. Wolves, nil. Wolves really didn't show much fight. And the big game... Arsenal 3, Newcastle 2, and then today's game just finished. Spurs 1, Fulham 0 in a very muscular, fighty, nasty performance. But first, we are going to go to North London for Arsenal versus Manchester United. And this was the game of the season. Well... It was the game of the narrative season. And uh, we'll talk about that right now. So, game of the season, Arsenal-Manchester United. I would be remiss if I did not discuss what this game means historically in the Premier League. So, Arsenal-Manchester United, two of the most historical clubs in all of British football history. Arsenal with the most FA Cups on 14 and Manchester United with the joint most league titles, I think on 17 with Liverpool, they may have passed him. Don't quote me on that. But early days of the Premier League, Manchester United had already won. They won in 92 the first season. Then they had a little bit of a downturn. I think Blackburn won one. Uh, But come 1996, I believe, or 97, Arsene Wenger arrives in the Premier League and challenges the authority of Manchester United. This is the Manchester United with the um, class of 92 in it. And they go to battle. Wenger, very polished, very professorial, very scientific versus the Scotsman from Glasgow, the venerable... um, Alex Ferguson, and they spend the early, the first five, this next 10-year period, 96 to about 2006, fighting it out uh, over supremacy of the league. In the later years, you have 
Chelsea come in with early Mourinho, so 2004, 2005. But everything from about 96 to 2003, is a battle between Arsenal and Manchester United. And many fans of the Premier League, this was the fixture. You had Liverpool shunted to a historical greatness. You had Spurs as a big team in London fighting just really with Arsenal. Chelsea, not really there, but sort of growing before pre-Abramovich. But the heavyweight clash of the Premier League was Arsenal versus United. And we were got this again. Um, Arsenal, United, after beating Manchester City and then having a stumble against Palace, came into this game with a chance to really cement the rivalry anew. And had United won, it could have really got this thing going, but that's not really what happened. Unfortunately, this Arsenal team is really, really great, and um, we should be lauding them right now. So where we start in this game is Arsenal at home, strong energy in the crowd, and they are up for it. First five minutes, it's frantic. United are on their heels. They frankly don't have the horses to match yet. With United, they simply don't. They're not grooved enough yet. This is the first season under Ten Hag. And it's a little bit too much. But that being said, United do strike first blood on a wonderful strike from Marcus Rashford. He is in form, beyond form. The young phenom from Manchester. Uh, just a genuinely good dude who had been sluggish and disappearing under Ole, and Ten Hag has turned him around. So a great strike from Rashford. United are feeling it. They feel great, but this is Arsenal's day. Right afterwards, within a few minutes of popping the ball around, and Ketia, header, goals in. I just want to get, I just want to make sure I've got exactly who connected this one. Um, and Ketia from Shanik, from Xhaka, from Odegaard to Xhaka, cross, header puts it in, and it's off to the races for um, for Arsenal. Saka gets a goal on 53 in the second half, so it's 1-1 going into the break. United have got to feel great, but they are holding on. They are not quite strong enough to match up with this young, hungry Arsenal side. Saka scores a goal that, frankly, he was faced backwards, I don't know how the fuck he did it. Um, he shot it. It went in. It was a wonderful goal. Incredible stuff. And so Arsenal are up. They're feeling strong. They're feeling good. Everything's moving. But then within five minutes, the butcher of Old Trafford, Mr. Lissandro Martinez, loops a header, a scramble in the box, and a looping header to get um, United level. After that goal by Lissandro Martinez, I'm going to count right here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There are ten straight shots without reply from Arsenal. Arsenal are like, we're not fucking losing this game. And they do end up getting the goal at in the 90th minute from Enketia, uh, by Enketia, who scores a brace. He's part of the narrative of this thing. Zinchenko uh, to onto Trossard. Martin Odegaard takes the shot and Enketia flicks it in. So 
basically in the second half, from from the moment Lissandro Martinez scores that goal, Arsenal are like, not fucking today, not in our house. And Arsenal get a deserved winner. And I think that their fans willed them over the line. This meant a ton to Arsenal. They cheered like they won the league. I'm not going to play that game. Oh, they shouldn't have cheered it. Cheer all you want. Moments matter. I'm in for it. Like, just do what you need to do. Uh, so that was great on their part. And I think the, the the story here is a couple things. One, Arsenal's youth. Arsenal staking a claim. They are on 50 points after 19 games on pace for 100. Okay? This is not some fly-by-night team. This is a real team. Um, all the best opportunities in this game come from Arsenal by a lot. Uh, Rashford does score a goal, and Alessandro Martinez's goal are good. Both were deflected. <laughs> Both sort of just like fluttered in. And United can feel good about fight and heart and spirit. There was no, there was no like they gave up, they put their heads down. United played well as as good as they could under the circumstances of where they are right now. But they are not, um, they are not where. Arsenal are right now. Arsenal staked their claim to the title and they have hit every marker that they possibly could. Um, and they are title favorites. City are right behind them. I, my feeling during this game was, listen, I cheered for fucking Rashford. I don't care. Uh, I was happy to see Arsenal lose. I don't get into the tribalism of, I don't want United to win. I want to win fucking trophy. So as a city fan, I was pulling for United ish, but I could see, how good Arsenal were. They're just so grooved, so on it. Um, one thing that came through is like then a connectivity between the players. Arsenal have started seven of their 11 players have played every game and been the starter for every game in the league. That is just a connectivity and a continuity that other teams don't have. City don't have that. United don't have that. Nobody has that. So... Arteta has done the right thing in that regard in that he knows his team is young. He knows they need to be connected and he's believed in them and lifted their spirit beyond um, what can be expected from a young team. I know I sang their plaudits early. I've been singing them for a year. Once I was on FB ref and I looked at their average age, this team is young. They're still the youngest team in the league by six months, if not more. Southampton, you think they're young? Arsenal are still younger, and they've been shedding older players. The oldest player on the team is Shaka, and he's 30, and then no one's even 25 who plays for this team. It is an incredibly youthful team. It is an incredibly dynamic team. They are going to win this league unless City go undefeated. Honestly, I'm not being funny. Now, City can go undefeated. City can win 19... 18, the next 18 games. It's unlikely. But Arsenal really, if they play at an 80-point pace in the second half, they'll still have 90 points, right? If they play at a 75-point pace, they'll still have 85 points. 85 points. They'll lose the league at 85 points. But if they don't win the league, it is a bottle job. I don't care what anyone says. I don't care if they're young they are on point to win this league. It is undoubtedly, okay? Uh, one player that I think 
the punditry and the punderati want to give shout out to is our friend Eddie Anketia. When Jesus went down, there was a big question about whether Arsenal could hang on um, without Jesus. And they turned to Eddie Nketiah, one of their own, a player who'd been in the academy, has played with Saka, played with, you know, Gabriel. All these players have come through together. And Martinelli, these players have spent time together. There's a connectivity. There is a collective spirit. And Nketiah embodies that. He had gone out on loan on Leeds. He was with Bielsa when they were in the championship. So he's worked his way onto the team. Most players don't play well at 18. And Nketiah has come on and done a good job, along with Bakara Saka, who Bakario, Bakario Saka, who is just a phenomenon. He's a great player. Arsenal have him. If this were the Wenger years, Arsenal fans would be afraid that they were going to sell them. Uh, but I think that the way that things have worked now, I don't think Arsenal need to sell their players. So they don't have the economics to need to sell. Uh, and I don't think I don't think Saka would want to go to City now, especially if Arsenal are going to win the league. They can retain their players. There's no need to leave. Uh, but that's what happened in the late 90s, early 2000s, mid-2000s. Arsenal would sell to keep their team going. And that was one of the big issues with Wenger towards towards the end of the season, um, especially towards the end of his reign with uh, the club. But Arsenal, back on it. Man United, Arsenal, the Battle of Reds. It feels like, you know, the Premier League is set in its places, and it's great for the Premier League. I've been trying to say earlier, what a great season this is. What an amazing season we're in store for. All the, Everything's close. Everything's up for grabs, and we go on to City. Um, City played Wolves. Uh, the only reason this game has any real juice to me is, is just it comes after Guardiola's press conference at the end of the last week where he blasted the team. He blasted the fans. He just calculatedly, coldly, and coolly said, you guys are not up for this. Arsenal will destroy us if we play them, and I'm not seeing passion and fight from my team. He literally asked, where is my team? Uh, Pep, you sold some of them. So one of the things that's come out of the narrative in the Twitterati, in the, in the Cityerati, in the Arsenalati is Zinchenko, the left back for Arsenal, and Gabriel Jesus were kind of energy guys for City. If you take it to the to the NBA style, they're these guys off the bench that go in for rebounds that that show fight. And they were you know clubhouse guys. So between Zinchenko and Gabby, City have lost something, especially with Fernandinho leaving. But I think they showed fight. Uh, I think that City put together a good performance, a strong performance, uh, something they needed to put together. You know, relatively dominant. Wolves did shoot themselves in the foot. This was a Holland game. Holland, you know, just, just, you know, just a beast. But one thing I do want to call out is the Mares Grealish partnership is playing really well. Foden has been shunted out. We lost. We're lost. We've lost. Um, we've lost Silva, who's coming on in games in the back half, and we're gaining Rico Lewis, the 18-year-old, who's playing inverted fullback. This weird. 3-2-4-1 formation where City put four, almost four players in the midfield, and it's kind of nuts and weird and 
City are just, they play formations no one plays. <laughs> Uh, I did notice in this back half of this game, in the second half, John Stone spent half the game in the midfield. So City are, you know, experimenting with how to play, ways to control games while still getting Holland involved. So Holland's goals, one comes from from De Bruyne, that three-quarter cross inside the half space, cross to Mares, he lays it back to De Bruyne, one-time cross right into the box, Holland, boom. Then uh, on a penalty against Gundogan, silly foul while Gundogan ran into the box. Erling Holland takes it. It's really nice to have a guy who's a penalty taker who just takes them. And then five minutes later, a complete brain fart by Sa. He hands the ball off to Holland and who slats it home from Mares again. Then he came off. Holland on three goals, comes off on the 61st minute. I mean, City now are at like this, this level where they can just take guys off. Uh, it was a dominant, easy performance, but it's really about City putting in effort, pressurizing Arsenal, and responding to where Pep wants the team to go. Do I think this version of City can do it? It's unlikely. Um, they've been trained to chase a red team down in Liverpool, but I think this time it might be a bridge too far, but City are game for it. They will wait. They will win games. They know how to do this. They're going through it again, but they need to have their cage rattled to step up and push the fight onto uh, Arsenal without that sort of blood. They need to get smacked in the mouth and taste blood in their mouth to really get going. Uh, and without that, it's going to be tough. I'm just writing something down. It's going to be tough to really get that engine going to show the fight. And speaking of fights, we must discuss the sword of Dicecles, which has indeed swung to Frank Lampard. Um, we knew it was coming. We knew it was here. The sword swings. It now moves on to Jesse Marsh, I think, would be the next person with, with the sword over his head. But as we know from last week, the sword of Dicecles, Sean Dice manager lingering, sitting around, waiting to get a manager's job, uh, a, a firefighter, a hard man, a football man that every English pundit wants to go on their team. So um, Frank Lampard fired after West Ham defeats Everton 2-0. Um, sad. I mean, nobody wants people to lose their jobs. It seems like Frank Lampard is genuinely loved across football, especially the way he's being protected by pundits and how uh, the narrative here is about destroying Everton and where they are, uh, especially with how they've spent money from manager to manager. And sure, that's true. But Frank Lampard is not a good coach. Um, he operates on vibes, uh, something similar that we've seen from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Frank Lampard, um, you know, these managers, you know, Alan Pardew, Steve Bruce, these guys that are just like, come on, we'll just go play, roll the ball out. You know, it's going to be great because, because, um, because it's football and you guys are football players. I don't think in the Premier League you can play on vibes anymore. Vibes are not going to get it done in this day and age. This league is too hard. This league is too difficult. This league is filled with too many smart managers who live and die by their coaching. 
Unai Emery is not going on vibes. He does not give a fuck. He's going by organization and winning. He's in the video room. Uh, these days are over. Um, just in terms of this game, Jared Bowen is back. Um, it feels like Moyes will get over the schneid, get over the hump. Uh, if if West Ham fire Moyes, it's a mistake. West Ham are way, way, way too good. Um, their underlying numbers, I showed it in our WhatsApp group, are that they're way in the middle of the table. They just happen to not be scoring goals. They need one of their guys to just step up and start scoring. Bowen was that. Two first half goals, one set up by Mikel Antonio. And, you know, West Ham, Everton just built nothing. Like, they're still playing with wingbacks and playing defensive. I mean, it's it's West Ham. Like, go after them or lose swinging. I, I, don't, I don't know what Frank Lampard was trying to do. He even looked defeated with his hat on in a pea coat. He was just done. Like, just, you're done. So Frank Lampard's fired. He gets credit for um, Anthony Gordon, Annie Wobie, and Mikalenko. Otherwise, no, he gets nothing. Um, I don't think he's a good manager. I don't think he's a good coach. I don't think he knows what he's doing. I think the days of managers and vibes are over. Um, for every Pep, for every Cruyff, for every Ancelotti, there's five former players who get jobs who stink. And uh, Lampard and Gerard are just the last two. Um, I mean, he may end up like, um, oh, God, I can't remember his name. Anyway, this guy in the championship who's who's been playing, who's been a manager for years, and he just keeps popping up. But, you know, he was a hard man, and I just can't remember his name. Paul Ince. Paul Ince is at Reading. He just keeps getting managerial jobs. But... He's not a great manager. So, you know, these managers are just sort of floating around, doing what they're supposed to do, and um, moving along from there. I want to go to other managers who are just moving along and futzing along. So we talk about our friends at Liverpool and Chelsea. They they both get a reprieve by just nullifying each other. And I think Potter and and Klopp are just happy to not have to deal with like a very, very tough game with anything resembling drama. They just kind of move through and deal with uh where they went. Um, if you woke up for this game, I'm sure some of Manny did, uh, for these Liverpool games, it was a draw. Uh, I don't think that Liverpool played particularly well. They managed to just get through this game without giving anything up. They played the kids. Uh, James Milner was in the game. Chelsea really bossed this game and probably should have won. But there was really nothing to write home about from um, from Liverpool's perspective. Aside from getting minutes for the youngster uh, Stefan Bazersic, even though he's from Spain, he has a he has a Croatian name. <laughs> I don't know where that comes from. Gakpo and Elliot are in, and um, and Nabi Keita got the start. So a regular, a different group. We saw James Milner again. So Klopp is still trying to find 
his best group. I don't think he has it yet. I don't think he knows what it is yet. Um, Gakpo played as a nine. He's not a nine. Elliot was up top, not in the midfield like he had been. Um, but Potter did play his strongest group. Havertz, Gallagher, Mount, and Jorginho. Weirdly, he plays Lewis Hall in the midfield. He looked out of place. He almost gave up a goal. Uh, he's not the place he should be. He had been playing on the wing, and he played Zayach as a, as a wing back. You know, he's still trying to find his way through as well. Batashield playing well. I thought, you know, a fourth, a four, a three, four, three for Chelsea. This game was more about both teams just sort of taking a breath, being where they need to be, getting their point. Um, I think it's now three draws in a row between Chelsea and Liverpool, and they just kind of act as though they they the way that I feel them is like two animals that have had a fight and they're just kind of like, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Just, just chill. Uh, the other big piece of this game was uh, Mikhailio Murdoch came in at, at 55 for Lewis Hall. He looked very, very lively. He looks to be a really good player, really direct. I think that Chelsea will probably have a better second half in the second half of the second half. So I could see Chelsea taking five games so look around the 25th 26th game of the season when they have a few months together and then from games probably like 28 to 30 like the last 10 games i could see chelsea going undefeated because they're going to have a lot of new players you're going to have potter having time there's not going to be as much of the kind of issues they've had uh dealing with their own team you know they they had a couple shots they they did a little bit not too much but you know they do have they do have brightness and they do have something new coming for them as they go through to the end of the season. So we move on to our other friends. Um, I don't have much on this game because it just happened, but Fulham v Spurs. This was a street fight, uh, as most London derbies are. Just a brawl between two teams in London fighting it out for points. Fulham, they've had a great season. Uh, Paulinho, like I said, Mitrovic putting himself around. Spurs get a goal on out of nothing, really. Harry Kane, top of the box, you know, finds a little bit of space and fires it into the corner. That's why Spurs are Spurs. They really are the Harry Kane team. And without him, they'd be bottom half, mid-table, easily, especially the way Son has just died. He's gone. But I would like to give a little shout-out to the trench players, right? Paulinha, Hoiberg, Betancourt, Harrison Reed, just midfield battling. This game was about who wanted to leave it on the other players more. So in some sense, it's a good game for Spurs to win because it was gritty and it took effort and it took fight. But I still can't stop remembering them blowing a game against City where they were limp in the second half. So there's somewhere, Spurs are somewhere between Fulham and City lies Spurs. They're, they're in there with Liverpool and Chelsea, probably a little bit better, but not really. Um, they are on a semi-rebuild space, if you will. 
but not not too bad. But I think you know their their big games are probably on the back half of the season. Maybe they can take points off folks. Maybe they can see where they are, where they're feeling, where they feel best. I'm not sure for Spurs at this point. They're a little bit on the back half of the season for them. They just have to figure out what they want to go for, what success means for the rest of their season, because frankly, it's kind of reached, it's kind of petered out a little bit for them. Uh, but I wonder how they react to the end of the season. Um, you know, they still have Champions League, so they can still push there. I can't see them winning the Champions League, but they can still do stuff and they have to figure out if they can get um, uh, Harry Kane re signed. So we are going to go to review the rest of the Premier League match week. Um, first, with our friends uh, from Nottingham Forest. They go on the road to South to Bournemouth and get a point, renewing their rivalry with Bournemouth from the championship. They're down in this game early. Jaden Anthony with a really nice goal. But Forrest behind Sam Surridge. Get it done. Good job by the Forest and the Tricky Trees. They do stay out of the relegation zone. And for Forrest and for teams on the back end, you know, at the top end of the, at the spectrum, draws are bad and they feel like a loss and they feel terrible. But when you're at the bottom, any non-loss is a win. <laughs> so, so Forrest getting a point is fantastic for them. They'll take it any day of the week. Steve Cooper does have this team moving. Gary O'Neill does not have his team moving. Uh, Bournemouth are sinking slowly but surely. Slowly but surely. Then we go on to Southampton versus Villa. Um, Southampton will feel hard done in this game because I feel like, you know, they had this game in hand and um, they got screwed by a VAR call where it's a mild nudge in the back and the goal gets called back that James Ward-Prowse scores. And then late in the game in the 77th minute, Ollie Watkins puts in a header and they steal it. Um, so I do think that the last few weeks from Nathan Jones have been better for Southampton. But again, I still think they need a keeper. They can't rely on Bazuna. He makes saves sometimes, but he's not good enough. And Emmy Martinez saves Aston Villa weekly. <laughs> uh, it's just all the time, especially late in the game. Southampton did put a charge in to get an equalizer, but they could not because Emmy Martinez is a keeper who keeps you in the league. He's really good. He's carried on his form from the World Cup into this back half of the season, and he's doing great for Southampton. Probably the game of the day, but just not too much on it, was um, Leicester versus Brighton. Really enjoyable. You know, two teams that are going in different directions. I think Brighton looks at Leicester and says, hey, why not us in terms of getting into Europe, in terms of pushing to maybe a, a Europa League spot. Maybe they can crack European spaces the way that Leicester did. And then Leicester see Brighton as going, hey, that's our spot. You, we're, the, we're the plucky team that, that, that used to be everyone's darling, and you guys have taken our spot. This game was all about Matomo. God, Matomo is so good. He goal of the weekend on 27, cuts in, fires it in. Incredible stuff. Mark Albrighton comes on right after, scores a goal. Harvey Barnes missed one, but then 
puts Leicester up on 63. So they're up 2-1 online to win this game. But Brighton has found their striker. Young Evan Ferguson on the spot, scores a late goal to steal it. An amazing header on the cross. Flicks it in for probably almost level with the with the with the uh with the penalty spot flicks it in goes in and deserbi's boys get the draw ferguson has been a revelation matoma's been a revelation they don't care if they sold trossard they'll take the money and reinvest it into the team they are doing great my boys caicedo my boys Gross and McAllister. Uh, Sully Marsh missed a sitter in this one. It was shocking how much he missed it. And I do want to uh, give you my card-carrying uh, card to the to the Lewis Dunk Appreciation Fest. How he's still on this team and not on a top six team. Like, hey, Spurs, you should have signed Lewis Dunk two years ago, three years ago. He's an incredible player, a leader, a defender. He does defending. He can take the ball out. There's a reason why Brighton have been good, and Lewis Dunk is that reason. He's one of the bright players for this team. And if you want to look at a team that plays really well and does really well, Lewis Dunk is the man for that. And then we have at the end here two nil nils. I almost don't want to go into either of them, uh, but Newcastle and Crystal Palace go nil nil, and Leeds and. Um, Leeds and Brentford go nil-nil. Two games you wouldn't have thought would be nil-nil. For Newcastle, their goals have just dried up. Almiron being the luckiest striker in, in history. He was scoring every other shot. has seemed to dry it up. But Newcastle, like I said, best defense in the league. Tim Pope made saves on the ever-tricky and ever-powerful kind of Crystal Palace. Have so many tricky players. They just don't have a real striker. And Palace could have got something out of this game. But Newcastle have now their ninth draw. They have 10 wins, nine draws, only one loss. Only Arsenal has one loss. They're just unable to win games right now because they're not getting goals from anywhere. But Newcastle play nil-nil. Leeds, on the other hand, play basketball up and down, uh, seem to run around without with chickens without their heads, need to calm down and get good shots off. But they prevent Brentford from doing anything. Anyone who's a Bees fan, Brentford Bees, knows this team is not good away from home. Makes the makes the makes the win against City even more crazy. But Brentford keep their unbeaten run going. They're the only unbeaten team in London. They're now seven unbeaten in a row. And Brentford rolls on. They will be where they are. But the sword of Daishakles does roll on to Jesse Marsh. And I do have a bone to pick on the coverage of our friend Mr. Jesse Marsh. Martin Keona, match of the day, and Troy Deeney both blast Jesse Marsh for his um, his optimism, frankly. And I think what happens is Europeans are generally pessimistic. They just are. They don't like people rising above their station. They don't like optimism in general. It's anathema to them. And while when Americans hear Jesse Marsh saying, I believe in this group, these guys are playing for me, I love them, we hear that and think, oh, yeah, that sounds, you know, like a, like a Tony Robbins, like a, a positive spirit kind of guy that, that, is, that is imbued in American culture. This is something we are. We are this way. It's something that makes 
American entrepreneurs be the way they are because we don't listen when people say, oh, you can't do it. Don't ever try it. We say, well, you haven't seen me do it. And Jesse Marsh is very much that way. And I don't think the English pundits get it. Uh, Martin Keown called it Blarney. Um, he said it was propaganda. Um, um, Troy Deeney said, said, said that Marsh was delusional. Like they just don't get American optimism because they're not American. So these are one of these great moments of culture where, hey, how does this connect? How does this work? Why can't, why is, why is Jesse Marsh getting so much stick for being who he is? Uh, because he's being very American. He's from Wisconsin. He, you know, he, he probably has read every motivational book you could possibly read and is trying to imbue his team with that. And his team does play with optimism, but they need to calm down because they're all kids and they're all young. And it's a little bit, it's a little bit nuts uh, on his side, but I, I, I do like the way he is. He is a breath of fresh air. I like Marsh. I hope he doesn't get sacked. Um, but the sword is on his side, and he's not going to get the benefit of the doubt the way someone like Moyes would. Uh, I felt like Mar I felt like Lampard got massive benefit of the doubt. He should have been fired five games ago. Um, but Marsh has been getting draws, but they need to get some wins. Uh, they've got to get Bamford firing to get their team moving. But it is interesting, something to watch and listen on how British pundits talk about an American coach. I don't, I think there's a cultural disconnect. Um, speaking of cultural disconnects, um, I want to talk about my uh, Premier League All-Star team. I know you don't call them All-Star teams. I know you find it disgusting. I will call it a best 11 of the first half. So um, I thought about it, uh, used a lot of the sources that are out there from who scored to FB ref to watching games to just kind of putting it all together and understanding it. And I'm going to go with a 4-4-2. Uh, very offensive team. I'm not if it, I'll, I'll when I come up to players that I think need a need a call out, I'll do that. But um, my goalkeeper is going to be Allison. I just think he's the best goalkeeper in the league. Stats say that's true. Watching Liverpool says that says that's true. All those balls in behind, all that high line, who's the person who stops all those goals all the time? It's Allison. Uh he's had some howlers last week he had one, but Allison is the best keeper in the league. Um although the confidence within Liverpool is starting to slip uh, I do give shouts to Ramsdale for his leadership and Pope for being the goalkeeper of the best defense in the league. But uh, they don't have a post-shot XG, you can look it up, that Allison has. He's basically saved nine more goals than you would expect to start. I'm going to work from right to left in the, in the defense. Like I said, Newcastle has the best defense in the league and it's led by Kieran Trippia. He's been great this season. No one gets past him. He's got a goal and four assists, and he is my right back. Center, right center back. Da -da 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 -da. Saliba. Saliba comes in for me. I mean, he's the player who's transformed Arsenal from the fifth-place team that they were to 15 points better this season. Everything else is the same. Gabriel Jesus is not playing, and he, especially early in the season, set up a partnership with Gabriel where he's just behind everything, controlling everything, very calm, cool, and collected. This should not be a surprise. 
He was the young defender of the league, of League One from Marseille, and he comes back in. Left center back. There can only be one name, and it's Thiago Silva. 38 years old, single-handedly carrying Chelsea on a weekly basis. Without him, they'd be cooked. They also, as much as Chelsea is having a sputtering season, they do not give up goals. It's a very good defensive team. They just don't have that creativity to keep things going. They hold on to the ball. They defend well, but it's all Thiago. Specifically, uh, in the game the other day, he just headed everything away. It was fantastic. At left back, this is more a shout because I've always liked him, and I and he's been the creative fullback for Liverpool because Alexander Arnold has no assists or has one. Andy Robertson, he's been the best defender. In, it used to be that he and Van Dyke would lock up their whole side and everything would come down Trent's side. But now it's just him because Van Dyke has slipped so much. And I just love Andy Robertson. He is the best defender on Liverpool. Liverpool's defense has slipped a little bit, but in combination of running, leadership, attacking, Andy Robertson is my left back. On the wing of my left field four, of my midfield four, Bakari Saka, direct. Shaking off that Euro thing, best players in the league, makes the team go. Bakari Saka is fantastic. He showed it in this in this game, scoring a goal, showed it in the London Derby. Saka is making Arsenal go, and you're going to find a few more Arsenal players. Uh, the next one, Kevin De Bruyne, left center midfield, leader in assists, best player on the team, a fighter, really, for City. He's very hard on his teammates. You'll see him yelling at people. And has an argument for being the best midfielder in the world on one of the best teams in the world. Uh, his partner will be Martin Odegaard. Probably they could be on other sides of each other. Odegaard does play the same spot as De Bruyne, but I'm putting Odegaard here. Just an incredible player. I think Mike and I discussed him a long time ago. We just loved him. Uh, he's finding goals. He's now got six this year. We were talking about him getting the 10. All that touch they can fire the ball into him anytime. The nutmeg pass to Shaka. Just every game, he does something amazing. And he's the captain of a team that are winning the league and on 50 points after 19 games, Martin Odegaard. And just the other one, a youth player, a player who was slated to be the, the wonderkin at 15. He could have been crushed and somehow wasn't. So respect to Martin Odegaard. On the wing, I've got I've got Martinelli on the other side, but I could be tempted to make it a three move Martinelli away or move him up top and change things. But I just thought that Martinelli represents Arsenal's fun, direct attack young and, and represents Arsenal's approach of players coming up together. So I really like Martinelli uh, and they're the best team in the league. My strikers, I'm going with a two Kane is the sun, the moon and the star of Spurs without him. They battle relegation. Maybe. With him, they're in the top half. So there's there's Harry Kane. Scored the goal today. Incredible stuff. And then Erling Holland. I mean, he needs service, but you know that if City really needed to, they could completely change the way they play. Or if Pep Guardiola got into a car crash and they had a different coach and they just kicked it up to Holland, he'd still score 25 goals because he's that good. So that is my 11. Allison, Trippier, Saliba, Thiago, Robertson, Saka, De Bruyne, Odegaard, Martinelli, Kane and Holland, which shouts to a couple players. If we were playing with holding midfielders, we'd have to call out Casemiro. We'd have to call out uh, Rodri to replace Martinelli. I'd have to call out Rashford. Incredible season. Great season by him. 
And then up top, shout out to uh, Mitrovic, shout out to Almiron, all players who are having great seasons and putting a lot of good shifts in, but they just don't make the cut. Who have you got? Who have you got for your best 11 of the season? All right. That's it. That was the Squeaky Bum Time Podcast with your host, Laurent Portines. We are the football wing of the Chop Sports Channel, exclusively presented by on the Premier Streaming Network. We record on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And please, please, please rate and review the show, because if you haven't, you suck. <laughs> Thanks. Bye.